Uh, so, uh, today, we're starting Judges. Uh, this is going to be real different, and it's going to be uh, real different, uh, not just because we're doing Old Testament and not New Testament, which is where we've been for a lot of years as a church. Um, it's going to be different because uh, we're going to be taking large chunks uh, of the Scriptures. And so today, I'm really covering the whole first chapter and the first five verses of the second chapter. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail uh, over all of it, or we'd be here all night. And uh, so each week, I'm going to be working our way through Judges. But like tonight, I'm going to summarize 26 verses, and then I'm going to preach about 15 of them. Next week, uh, we're going to look at about 20 verses, and I'm going to preach about 8 of them. So there's going to be uh, kind of zoning in on these smaller sections while getting the whole picture uh, 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 the whole picture of, of the chunk we're looking at. Uh, so it's going to be really different uh, for you as the hearer. It's really different for me uh, as the preacher because I started out, and when I got done, I had about a 48-minute sermon, and uh, it's not, we're not going to be that long. Uh, so I had to cut a bunch out because I'm used to giving more detail than what, what we're going to be able to do. Uh, there's going to be some historical context each week, especially this week, uh, so it'll feel a little luxury uh, at times, but I'm, I'm willing to take that risk. And here's why, uh, because... Uh, our knowledge of the Old Testament is just bad, and uh, we wouldn't, um, we're not going to understand what's going on without giving a little context. So just take a few, maybe, I'm not a note taker uh, in, in, in sermons, uh, but maybe this would be a, a good time to do it. Um, so let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that we wouldn't be uh, overwhelmed by information, uh, but Lord, that we would see that our, our biggest fault isn't a lack of information. Our biggest fault is our cold and stubborn hearts. And so, Lord, would you warm our hearts by your Spirit with your Word uh, tonight. Praise in your name. Amen. Um, have you ever, ever done anything halfway? Uh, are you the person on vacation, you put together the edge and maybe the main graphic, but you leave the sky for some mysterious person to come later? Is that you? Uh, are you the person who goes and you get your car fixed and uh, your mechanic gives you three options and you pick the cheapest one so your car will drive, but not for very long? Uh, are you the person when you were a kid, uh, your parents asked you to clean up your room, you cleaned it up, but everything was stuffed under the bed or in the closet? Uh, maybe the person you said you read a book, but you'd really just read the first two chapters. Uh, maybe uh, you're like me, and your wife, my, Jenna, asked me, hey, did you cook that meat on the grill? And I, I'm like, uh, kind of, halfway, because uh, she wants it, like, burnt, and I don't. And um, so did I cook it? Yes, but just not all the way. Well, this is the story of Israel. They know what God expects of them. And they do it. They really do. But they just do it halfway. This is a story of God's people in general, but it's really, really the story of God's people and Judges. And so when we get to Judges, uh, we're getting to, the, we're getting to the, 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 the seventh book in the Bible. And jumping into Judges, the Bible is a story from beginning to end. And jumping into Judges is like jumping in uh, to, to, to like the eighth uh, chapter of a 25 chapter book. Uh, jumping into Judges as your reference point, if, that's, if you don't have any reference point before that, it's like getting the third season of an eight season television series. And so what I want to do real quick is just summarize the first six books of the Bible so that we see Judges in its context. 
So we have uh, Genesis 1.1. We see what happens. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates all things in the earth. And in the last day, he creates Adam and Eve. And he tells Adam and Eve, you can do whatever you want, except I'm going to give you one prohibition. There's one thing that you can't do. And as long as you obey this rule, you will live happily ever after. The problem is they couldn't follow the one rule. God says, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they know that the consequence for their eating of the tree was death. And death for them didn't mean that they were just going to keel over dead and their heart would start beating. What death meant for them is that it meant separation from God. And so they were expelled from the garden. And on their way out of the garden, God gives them a, a promise in, in Genesis 3, verses 14 to 17. He gives them the promise that one day the serpent, the one who tempted them to disobey, to, to, to go with the prohibition, was, is that, that a seed's going to come from the woman to crush the serpent's head. That evil's not going to have its way forever. But then you see the consequences of their decision right there in chapter 4. So they're kicked out of the garden. Uh, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. One son kills the other. Sons killing sons. You go a little bit farther and you see sons shaming fathers. You go a little bit farther and you see men thinking they're so arrogant that they think that they can get to God. And so you get to the end of chapter 11 of Genesis and things are spiraling out of control. That the sin that's originated with Adam and Eve is now widespread. Genesis 6 verse 9 says that all men continually thought evil thoughts all the time. What a summary of the human race. And God in the midst of, of, of this decline comes in and he makes a promise. He makes a promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, first few verses. I'll read that promise to you. It says... God promises Abraham, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, thank goodness, something good's got to happen at this point in the story. There's got to be some hope. And so God gives hope uh, to this old man who's childless, married to an old woman, Sarah. And they try for a long time to have a child, and they don't. They finally do with Isaac. So here's the beginning of the nation, this little three-person nation, this three-person people group. Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. And just a few generations further on, uh, these people, this nation, this people group, moves to Egypt because there's a drought, and Egypt's got a lot of resources. They go to Egypt, and they eat to their heart's content, and the nation explodes. Really fast, like mice down there in Egypt. That's what happens. And so when, when they're down there, the, the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gets intimidated, thinking, golly, if these people rise up, there would be a coup against me, and I could, be, I, I, I could be out of a job. And so what he says is that any Hebrew, any Israelite boy who's going to be born, I'm going to kill him. And he does. He kills almost all of them. There's one that's not killed. His name's Moses. Moses is saved. Moses grows up and he becomes the one who leads this vast number of people out of Egypt where they're slaves across the Nile River and now they're wandering in the desert. And you hear about this wandering in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the, three, the, the, the second, third, and fourth books of the Bible. And, and while they're wandering, God gives them a law and says, here's the kind of people I want you to be. He gives them a constitution. He gives them a, a, a way to live their life as his people. 
So here you've got, you've got a lot of people, you've got a law, but these are people who don't have a geographic space. They don't have a land and God's promised them the land. And so they get right there to the edge of the land that God's told them they're going to have. And they're sitting there on the banks of the Jordan River. They're on one side of the river in Moab and they're looking across on the promised land. It's called Canaan. And Moses dies on this side of the river. And God raises up another leader. His name's Joshua. And he says, Joshua, I want you to go into that land. I want you to lead the people over there. And then I want you to, to, to dispossess all the people there. Displace them. Get rid of them. And I want that land is going to be your land. And Joshua follows his command. Joshua's really successful through most of the, book of, uh, of, of the book of Joshua. And then you get towards the end. And the people of God in Joshua get a little lax. They begin to tolerate the Canaanites. And this is the beginning, in some ways, of the end. Judges is the aftermath of the tolerance of the people of God under Joshua's leadership. The tolerance of their idolatry. And so when we get to Judges chapter 1, first 26 verses, we, we've got God giving the Israelites a second chance. He says, okay, I told Joshua, if you'll displace all the Canaanites, things are going to go well with you. Okay, Joshua didn't do that, so I'm coming to you. People of God, after Joshua's death, I, I need you to get rid of these Canaanite people. And if you do, you're going to be a people holy unto me. If you don't, you're going to fall, you're going to fall into idolatry. And that's the question of the book of Judges. Are they going to get rid of the Canaanites and flourish? Or are they going to tolerate them and fall into idolatry? Well, I'm going to go ahead and burst the bubble for you. They tolerate them. And they fall into idolatry. They don't drive out the Canaanites, and it's, the, and it's to their own demise. And when you see in verses 1 through 25, you get three episodes. The first one, uh, the first one you'll see, it starts in, in, in verse 2. You got Judah. They, they need to get rid of their people. They need to get rid of the Canaanites in their little area. There's 12 tribes in Israel, and those 12 tribes are, are going to get different, imagine states, imagine towns in the nation of Israel. They've all, all 12 of them have a part of it. And Judah's going to go into their part and try to dispossess those people. They don't trust God that they can actually do it. They don't trust God that he's going to empower them to do it. So what do they do? They ask one of the other tribes to help them. They ask Simeon's tribe to come and help them dispossess the Canaanites in their, in their state. So they don't trust God. The next episode we see is with Caleb. You might know about Caleb. Uh, we see Caleb back uh, in the book of Numbers. And Caleb's on, he's on this side. He's on this side of the Jordan River. He's, on, he's in Moab. It's Caleb and it's Joshua. And they're the only two who have the courage. They're only two who are brave enough to trust God. They're the only ones with the faith to trust God to go in and scout out. What does Canaan look like? What's it like over there? And they come back. Well, Joshua's died, he, he's died, but Caleb's still this man of faith in the nation. And his tribe, he says, hey, if anybody in my tribe, I'm kind of getting old. If anybody in my tribe wants to rise up and lead our tribe to dispossess the Canaanites, I'll make you a huge promise. I'll make a deal with you. I'll give you my daughter for your wife. A guy named Othniel stands up and says, I'll do it. And God gets behind him in his faith. And he's successful. And if the nation of Israel would have followed Caleb and Othniel's lead, they would be okay. But they didn't. So again, we see a glimmer of hope in this otherwise desolate situation. Then we have a third account. And the third account starts in verse 19, and it's chilling. And it reads this. And the Lord was with Judah, 
and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Okay? You got the people of God, they see that these people have chariots of iron, and they want to measure their strength to their strength. To, to, they want to measure their strength uh, over here, the people on the plain, to the people of God. And so they shrink back and say, there's no way we can defeat them. So they don't. So they let them stay. So you see their fear. Those three episodes happen in verses 1 through 26. And then we hop in uh, to, to, to where I want, really want to get started uh, today. So let's uh, start with verse 27 in your bulletin, page 8. We'll read through uh, chapter 2, verse 5. So we get some more. We saw these three episodes. Now he, he's going to kind of go rapid fire uh, in, in his narration. It says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shion and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibelim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gazar. So the Canaanites lived in Gazar among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Katron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or Akzib or Helba or of Afik or of Rahab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anoth. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anoth became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Aijalon, and in Shalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Salah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. The word of the Lord. All right, so I've got uh, three points from this looks like a geography lesson uh, of the ancient Near East. Uh, one is the command, the second is the response, and third is the consequence. The command the response, and the consequence. Uh, look at verse 27. I, I'm going to be pointing you back here, so you keep, keep this handy for, for yourself. Look at verse 27. It says, Manasseh did not drive them out. 
Look at verse 29. Manasseh is one of the 12 tribes. Ephraim is another one of the 12 tribes. Ephraim, verse 29, did not drive out. Verse 30, Zebulon, another one of the tribes, did not drive out. Asher, verse 31, did not drive out. Verse 33, Naphtali, did not drive out. So what does this drive out? What does this mean? Well, here's what it means. It means to evict the Canaanites from their homeland and kill them. God's command was to steal their land and kill them. It very much sounds like ethnic cleansing. Many of us, we'd say it's legitimate to defend your own homeland when you're attacked, but it's illegitimate to confiscate someone else's homeland. Yet it seems like driving out is what's endorsed. seems like this is what they're being punished for in the book of Judges. So why is God allowing his people to break the sixth and eighth commandments? Well, it's a tough one. And this is why you haven't heard many sermons from the book of Judges. Because this really is one of the toughest issues presented by the Bible for us to deal with as moderns. I've struggled with this for lots of weeks and second-guessed myself. Maybe there's another book of the Bible that the Lord has for us. It's hard. Uh, But if we only believe the things in the Scriptures that are easy for us to believe, then doesn't that say something about us? Doesn't that say that we're in some ways giving ourselves the position as the great arbiter of truth? Are we placing ourselves in the seat as the only one who gets to decide what's right and wrong? If that's true, is that where you want to be? Do you really think that you've got the capacity for that? What's sad is that sometimes I really think I do. And this is a place for many of us uh, that we're going to need to be really slow to come to conclusions as we go through the book of Judges. And we're going to let Judges play out for itself. Let's see where we're going to end up. But let me give you a little background to these Canaanite people. I think this will help. Uh, let's look at two places. Not, you can write these down and look at them later. But if you look at what the Canaanites are like, you can look in Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 30. And if you read Leviticus 18, 6 through 30, what you're going to find is that the Canaanites practiced all kinds of sexual immorality. If you think that the U.S. is a sexified culture, Go to Canaan. Because in Canaan, here's what they practice. They practice incest, bestiality, general adultery, and homosexuality. That was Canaan. And then we see in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, uh, that they were all into fortune telling. And probably most gruesome is that they regularly practice child sacrifice. Sick. These Canaanites were exceedingly wicked. So it's got to be noted that the Canaanites are not simply getting the raw end of the deal by being in the wrong, dwelling and living in the wrong place at the wrong time. Nor is Israel, in its part, acting imperialistically. See, even with this special mandate, which you can't find anywhere else in the Scriptures, nowhere else besides Joshua and Judges do you see God doing something like this. But even with this special mandate, the Israelites, when they take over the Canaanite people, they can't plunder their stuff. 
and they can't force them into, into slave labor. Why is that? Well, it's because the conquest for them was not to become more powerful or more prosperous. The point was for Israel to create a place where they could serve and honor God. So yes, the need for Israel to evict the Canaanites was in part the wickedness of the Canaanites. So it's divine judgment. But it's also for the protection of Israel. See, Israel, they, they, were, a, they were very vulnerable spiritually. God knew that they weren't going to be able to withstand the temptations posed by living in such close relationship with Canaan. God knew that their idolatry, God knew that their sexual immorality were far too alluring for the Israelites. And so the narrative of Judges is going to tell us very quickly, even next week, I'm a sermon next week, it's going to tell us very quickly and repeatedly that idolatry, the worship of something or someone other than God, is what threatens Israel the most. That's what threatens us the most, too. That's why it's the first commandment. You look at the Ten Commandments, what's the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. Think about Jesus. When he sums up the law, what does he say? That all the law can be summarized in this. Love God and love your neighbor. So as Christians, this is our most fundamental task. It's to love God with everything we've got, with our bodies, with our affection, with our time, with our talents, with our thoughts, with our relationships. God is our top priority and our chief loyalty. But this just isn't our lived reality, is it? I think one of the reasons God isn't our top priority is because of the culture that surrounds us, just like it was for Israel. Because ever since the fall, there's not been one culture that's reinforced God's place in our lives. Not one. It's not like there was good old days at any point in American history or any other country's history that we could go to and say, gosh, if we lived in that culture, it'd be really easy to love God with all of who we are. That's never happened. Because all cultures compete for the Christian's worship. In the case of Israel and the judges, it was Canaan they had to deal with. And the Canaanites, they were, they were pagans. They had set up this parallel religious system to Israel. It was totally antithetical to what God was all about. It's all, it, was ter- it was completely parallel to what God had prescribed in the law. Now for us, we don't necessarily have this parallel major world religion that entices us the way that paganism enticed the Israelites. That doesn't mean we don't have anything to worry about. We might not have to worry. I, 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 I as your pastor, don't have to worry about uh, losing you to Judaism. I don't have to worry about losing you to Islam. I don't, you don't have to worry about me to being a Buddhist. But we do, what we do have to worry about for one another is, are we going to love God with all our hearts? See, our hearts are enticed away from loving God above all things. See, we don't have these other world religions that compete with our affections. What we have to compete with our affections is the idolatry of family, the idolatry of success, the idolatry of money, of beauty, and of power. Now, we're not, we're not going to find each other bowing down and praying down to these idols in our culture. But we give our lives to them in a way that can only be described as worship. It's better for you, it's beauty. 
If it's beauty, then you fear losing your beauty through the aging process. Let's talk about money. We easily give our lives to making money because we think that the ultimate security is going to be found in a full bank account. We daydream about the prestige that's going to come when we finally finish school and we pass our boards. Why do we do that? It's because those things are in our hearts and our culture tells us to run after them with all we got. See, when, when we unwittingly, when we immerse ourselves in this culture and we underestimate its power in our souls, our worship of God is threatened. The bottom line is that the Israelites were weak spiritually and so are you. They lacked obedience. They did not drive them out. But then we see the response. We see what happens. God tells them, all right, drive them out. They don't. What happens? Well, verse 27 through 36, it doesn't, really complete, it doesn't completely paint a bleak picture. You do see some success that happens. You've got Manasseh, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Joseph. Uh, they're able to force the Canaanites into labor. That means that they were strong enough to subdue them. But they tolerated them and they used them, which was against the Lord's command. And then you see two of the other tribes, Ephraim and Asher, they were strong enough to invade their given area and not be defeated. So here you've got some strong tribes who are able to do some good stuff. So on one hand, God's people didn't obey him by refusing to drive out the Canaanites, while on the other, they have some measure of success. How come we don't just read through there that the Canaanites kicked their tail? Well, it says a lot about God. And it says that he's gracious. It says that he gives victory in the midst of our rebellion. Man, I think this has got a lot to, for me and you today. God's made some real demands of us, and we don't fully obey them. And in some ways, he gives us success anyways. Mark chapter 9, great account of there's a man who's got a, 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 sick, a sick son. He brings his sick son to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, if you can do anything, heal my son. Now, he's talking to God here, and he says, if. And Jesus looks at him incredulously, and he says, if you can. All things are possible for the one who believes. And listen to the father's reply. I believe. Help my unbelief. So Jesus, what he just told him was, hey, father, I, I can do anything for the one who believes. And the father says that he's not all the way there. He's saying, if, faith, if anything is possible for the one who has faith, he says, I I've got some, but not a lot. Jesus, the, the, the father saying, I, I'm not 100% there. I'm not all in, but I'm not zero either. And do you know how Jesus responds? Jesus heals his son. Jesus takes the little he does have and does something with it. Jesus healed him fully, even though the man only partially believed. The Israelites partially obeyed God and God gave them more success than was warranted. Their success was disproportionate to their obedience. Let 
me encourage you to do something, friends, this week. I want you to think back over your life. I want you to think about the two or three or 17 seasons in your life where you are particularly rebellious. And I want you to think about how God blessed you anyways in those seasons. I've thought about that for me this week. And I just can't believe it. Because the only God that I can imagine is a God who only wants to do something for me when I'm all in. But God did something for the Israelites when they weren't all in. And so when you get to the end of chapter 1, we've just looked at it. I summarized a bunch and we looked at the last 10 verses or so. You're wondering, what's God going to do here? How's God going to respond? It seems like these people are kind of in and kind of out. Well, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he does. He gives his consequence. In verse 1, I want you to look at it. Go to your bulletin there. It's page 9. Page 9, look at verse 1. The angel of the Lord says, I will never break covenant with you. All right, I'm going to do this three times. The angel of the Lord says, I will never break covenant with you. Just to be annoying. Verse 1 says, the angel of the Lord says, I will never break covenant with you. You know what that is, don't you? It's a statement of God's unconditional commitment to his people. What it sounds like is no matter how unfaithful Israel is going to be, God's going to hold them up. And God's going to be unwaveringly committed to them. But then jump down there a little bit. So you see the unconditionality, the, 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 how unconditional God is in his commitment to his people. We'll go down a little bit farther and it says, But then the angel of the Lord says, You have not obeyed my voice. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it's as if God is making two promises that contradict each other, isn't he? On one hand, he's saying, I promise not to break covenant with you. And on the other, he says, I promise not to give the land to a disobedient people. So you've got God is in an impossible situation. He's sworn to bless Israel as his beloved people. And he's also sworn not to bless disobedient people. And this situation is what we long to be resolved all throughout the book of Judges. What's God going to do? He's committed himself to these people, but these people aren't committed to him. Is God going to wipe out his people for their sin because he's holy? Or is God going to lower his standards because he wants to remain faithful to his people? Something more doable for them. And friends, this is the tension we feel until we get to the cross. See, God proved himself holy by pouring out his wrath for our sin on his son, Jesus Christ. But he also proved himself lovingly faithful since he's now able to forgive and accept us. See, the cross is the only way that the tension can be resolved. It's the only way that God can love us conditionally and unconditionally. And friends, we need this tension as people who, only medi- who, only, who are obedience is mediocre at best. People who are only half in. People who only do things halfway. Now you might be saying, I'm not a halfway kind of person. I'm all in. 
I committed my life to Jesus. Let me stop you for a second. Trust me, you haven't. If that's you, what you're doing is you're really holding up the holiness of God. You're really, you're really puzzled as you read this. Like, why does God bless them at all? And you're probably a person in your, in your darker times, you're burdened by your guilt and fear because what happens if you're a person who ends up and you're only halfway there? What happens if you get to a place where you only obey halfway? But other, others of us are like, yeah, man, half. I'm trying to be a tenth over here. If that's you, I, I would guess that you're not burdened by guilt and fear. I would guess that complacency and giving in to sin and being okay with halfway obedience, that's where you're at. If that's where you're at, then you're majoring on God's love at the expense of his holiness. But the cross is the only place where we can live forgiven and obedient lives instead of sinful and disobedient lives. And friends, as we get through the book of Judges, this tension is going to build what is God going to do with half-hearted, halfway obedient people? And here's our challenge. To see ourselves as those people. To see ourselves as people who God's committed to nonetheless. Who continues to pursue them. This is a good news of Christianity, friends. If, if, if you're someone who's new to this or you're kind of on a restart, uh, know that the gospel is for you. Grace is enough for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being faithful when we're unfaithful. Thank you for being wholehearted when we're half-hearted. Um, thank you for going all the way when we just go part of the way. Uh, Lord, I, I pray uh, that the cross would recenter us uh, during these weeks. We pray these things in your name. Amen.